Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! We rely on your support to produce our independent journalism. Please do your part today by donating at democracynow.org. And thank you so much. democracy now. It's still too early to predict what these protests are going to lead to. But one thing I can tell you for sure, nothing will ever be the same in Iran after these protests. Protests in Iran have entered their second month, sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. More than a thousand protesters have been arrested. Some children have been sent to re-education camps. This comes as a massive fire engulfed parts of Tehran's infamous Evin prison, known for holding political prisoners. Today, we look at the scope, the scale, and sustainability of the protests in Iran with the Iranian activist and lawyer Dr. Shireen Abadi. She was once held in Evin prison. She was the first female judge in Iran. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003, the first Iranian and first Muslim woman to win the award. We'll speak with her about the violence of the security forces, the Iranian officials who are the focus of protesters' calls for regime change. What the people want is a democratic and a secular government. That's what they want. Because for 43 years, they have suffered a theocracy and they know what a theocracy is like. They no longer want to tolerate a theocracy. They want a democracy and they want secularism. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The African Union has scheduled peace talks for next week in South Africa over the worsening crisis in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict. On Wednesday, the World Health Organization's Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus warned time is running out to resolve the war, which broke out nearly two years ago. This is a health crisis for six million people. And the world is not paying enough attention. I urge the international community and the media to give this crisis the attention it deserves. There is a very narrow window now to prevent genocide. Gabriel is from Tigray. Thousands have been killed in the brutal conflict. One analyst estimates the death toll to be as high as 800,000 people. Millions have been displaced. Hundreds of thousands are facing famine. An investigation last year found all sides fighting in the war had committed violations that might amount to war crimes. Russian President Vladimir Putin has declared martial law in four regions of Ukraine recently annexed by Russia in violation of international law. The order will include new limits on public gatherings, grant more power to police, and will curtail the right of people to travel and communicate freely. In the occupied city of Kherson, Russian-installed leaders say they've begun evacuating 60,000 people as Ukraine's military presses a counteroffensive aimed at retaking the city. 
In Brussels, Belgium, European Union leaders have announced new sanctions on Iran after Russia launched a series of attacks on Ukrainian civilian and energy infrastructure using Iranian-made drones. Meanwhile, Britain's top military official has shrugged off Putin's threats to use tactical nuclear weapons in the battlefield, including in defense of recently annexed parts of Ukraine. Admiral Tony Radikin spoke Wednesday from London. He has few options left, hence the nuclear rhetoric. And while this is worrying and deeply irresponsible, it is a sign of weakness, which is precisely why the international community needs to remain strong and united. North Korea's military has fired hundreds of artillery shells into waters off the nation's west coast in an action condemned by South Korea as a violation of an agreement not to engage in provocative actions near the two countries' shared border. This follows a series of joint war games by the U.S., Japan and South Korea. On Wednesday, U.S. and South Korean forces practiced a joint river-crossing drill south of the capital, Seoul, involving helicopter, gunships, tanks, artillery and other heavy weaponry. In Lebanon, an outbreak of cholera has sickened dozens and left at least five people dead. It's Lebanon's first outbreak of the waterborne disease since 1993. This comes as Lebanon continues to suffer a deep economic crisis, which has led to poor sanitation and crumbling infrastructure. The cholera outbreak appears to have spilled over from neighboring Syria, where about two-thirds of water treatment plants have been damaged during the decade-long civil war. In Iran... Hundreds of people rallied at Tehran's international airport Wednesday evening to cheer the return of Elnaz Rakabi, a female rock climber who drew international headlines when she joined a competition in South Korea without wearing a headscarf. On Sunday, the 33-year-old climber wore her hair in a ponytail covered partially by a headband in violation of Iran's strict dress code during a climb at the International Federation of Sport Climbing's Asian Championships in Seoul. There were conflicting reports in Iranian media about whether Rakabi will now face arrest. She said in an interview with an Iran-run news agency Wednesday evening that she'd unintentionally forgotten to wear her, head, her hijab. The struggle that I had with wearing my shoes and preparing my gear made me forget about the proper hijab that I should have had, and I went to the wall and ascended. Many of Rakabi's supporters believe her statement was coerced. This comes as mass protests in Iran have entered their second month, sparked by the death last month of 22-year-old Masa Amini, while in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. After headlines, we'll spend the rest of the hour with Shireen Abadi, the Nobel Peace Prize-winning Iranian activist and lawyer, the first female judge in Iran. President Biden said Wednesday he will release another 15 million barrels of oil from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Biden's move comes just weeks ahead of November's midterm elections, when Republicans hope to capitalize on discontent over soaring inflation rates and high energy prices. Gas prices have fallen every day in the last week. Let me repeat, gas prices have come down and they continue to come down again. In Germany, nine climate activists with the group Scientist Rebellion have staged a nonviolent civil disobedience protest at the showroom of a Volkswagen factory in the city of Wolfsburg. On Wednesday, protesters glued scientific research papers to different models of Porsches on display. 
and they use super glue to attach themselves to the floor. Protester Gianluca Grimalda said the auto industry is responsible for some 12 percent of Germany's greenhouse gas emissions. His group wants Germany to reinstate a program making public transit more affordable, and they're demanding a speed limit on Germany's Autobahn highway system. We are here because we know as scientists that there is a clear connection between the amount of CO2 emissions and the increase in temperatures. And we have already seen that now with only 1.2 temperature increases since the pre-industrial level, we are observing famines, floods, droughts, and, and, and many other extreme weather events. We know that that is the cause, and we know that we must stop CO2 emissions. We know that we must decarbonize. The Biden administration says the United States will provide Cuba with $2 million in emergency relief to help the island recover from Hurricane Ian. On Wednesday, Cuban Foreign Minister Bruno Rodriguez expressed gratitude for the funds, but said the amount pales in comparison to the economic damage to Cuba caused by the U.S. embargo, which Rodriguez called a permanent pandemic and a constant hurricane. Between August 2021 and February 2022, the losses caused by the blockade were in the order of $3.806 billion. It is a record amount, a record for such a short period as these seven months. Today, the policy of President Joseph Biden's government towards Cuba is regrettable, and it is the same Republican policy. No changes have been introduced in that policy. The surgical design that pursues every income, every source of funding, and supply in the country remains a daily theme. Oklahoma is scheduled to execute death row prisoner Benjamin Cole today after the Supreme Court denied a last-minute appeal Wednesday. Lawyers say Cole, who was convicted of killing his nine-month-old daughter in 2002, suffers from paranoid schizophrenia and is essentially in a catatonic state. Oklahoma is planning on executing 25 people over a period of two years, despite concerns over the state's track record of botched lethal injections. Here in New York City, officials opened a large tent Wednesday on an island in the middle of the East River to use as an emergency shelter for asylum seekers arriving on buses from the U.S.-Mexico border. The tent will hold about 500 men and can expand to hold 1,000 sleeping head-to-toe on thin cots. This is New York City Emergency Management Commissioner Zach Iskol. There's not a lot of places that you can put this type of infrastructure and, and, and do this type of work caring for this many people. This is also a temporary facility. People are not going to be living it. People are, this is a short-term solution for people to figure out what their next destination is going to be. The tent city is on Randall's Island. Nearly 20,000 migrant asylum seekers have arrived in New York City since April, many from Venezuela. Some have been absorbed by the shelter system, while others end up on the streets. Many have been taken into the homes of volunteers who are also organizing food and clothing drives for the new arrivals. Rights advocates are still calling for better shelters. New York Immigration Coalition Executive Director Murata Wada says the tent shelter is, quote, a stain on our city's richest of welcoming immigrants and morally reprehensible, he said. He added to continue ignoring the calls from advocates and other city officials to utilize alternative and more appropriate housing options and instead begin implementing this dangerous plan. Mayor Adams has compromised New York City's status as a beacon of hope, he said.
In Texas, immigrant justice advocates are raising alarm over what they say is the unlawful detention of at least seven migrants from Mexico who were shot at by two white men three weeks ago. Twin brothers Michael and Mark Shepard opened fire on the migrants, later claimed they mistook them for wild hogs while out on a hunting trip. One person was killed, another was injured, the others have been locked up by ICE despite a directive that says they should be released since they were victims of a crime and have cooperated with authorities. The Shepard brothers were initially freed on bond but have since been taken back into custody and charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. One of the men, Michael Shepard, was the warden of the West Texas Detention Center, which has been accused of violating prisoners' human rights. A federal judge has ordered Donald Trump's former lawyer, John Eastman, to turn over 33 new documents to the House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. U.S. District Judge David Carter says one of the requested emails shows Trump knew the voter fraud numbers his team alleged in the Georgia election results were not true, yet signed off on their use in a voter fraud lawsuit Anyway, Judge Carter said the documents are not protected by attorney-client privilege since they relate to a possible crime. This comes after Special Master Judge Raymond Deary expressed doubts earlier this week that materials seized by the FBI at Mar-a-Lago were privileged and could be withheld from a Justice Department investigation. Meanwhile, Donald Trump was deposed Wednesday in the defamation lawsuit brought by former magazine columnist E. Jean Carroll, who's accused the former president of raping her in the 1990s. Trump has denied the accusation. Last week, a federal judge rejected his bid to again delay that deposition. A judge on Wednesday sentenced former UCLA student Christian Sakor to 42 months in prison for breaching the U.S. Capitol during the January 6th insurrection. Sakor carried a flag inside the Capitol representing the white supremacist group America First and sat in the chair that had just been vacated by former Vice President Mike Pence. Sakor also founded an America First group while at UCLA. In related news, students at Georgetown University confronted Mike Pence during a campus appearance Wednesday. Mr. Vice President, my question for you is why haven't you extended that bravery to publicly denouncing the violence of January 6th, as was condoned by President Trump, in order to scourge the Republican Party of Trump's anti-democratic, anti-freedom lies that you know to not be true. You know, January 6th was a tragic day. But thanks to the courage of law enforcement at the Capitol and federal law enforcement, the violence was quelled. And we reconvened the Congress the very same day. And we completed our duty under the Constitution of the United States and the laws of this country. Some students walked out of Pence's speech when asked if he would support Trump as a presidential candidate in 2024. Mike Pence answered, quote, might be somebody else I prefer more. 
And actor Anna Mae Wong will become the first Asian American to be featured on U.S. currency. The newly designed quarters will enter circulation next week. Wong was a child of Chinese immigrants born in Los Angeles in 1905. She acted in over 60 films before her death in 1961. She also was the first American actor of Asian descent to play a lead on a TV show. A biographical film of Anna Mae Wong is currently in the works. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org the War and Peace Report. When we come back, as protests in Iran enter their second month, sparked by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police, we'll speak with the Iranian activist, the lawyer, the first female judge in Iran, Dr. Shireen Abadi, the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003. Stay with us. گفتی بی تو هیچم با من بمون همیشه نباشی من میمیرم کل بی کل تو نمیشه چشت بایی کردم عطفا تو با و کردم چشت بایی کردم عطفا تو با سرد پاییز گلتون تو شکستی مثل عروس گل ها Sevdaliza, an Iranian Dutch singer-songwriter. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today, we look at the scope, the scale, sustainability of the protests in Iran, which have entered their second month after being sparked in September by the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini, while in custody of Iran's so-called morality police. More than a thousand protesters have been arrested. Some children have been sent to so-called re-education camps. The United Nations said Tuesday at least 23 children have been killed in the protests, one aged 11 years old. The Guardian reports another schoolgirl was killed by Iranian police after she was beaten when she refused to sing a pro-regime song during a raid on her school. Meanwhile, dozens rallied at Tehran's international airport Wednesday evening, where they cheered the return of Elnaz Rakabi, a female rock climber who drew international headlines when she joined a competition in South Korea without wearing a headscarf. On Sunday, the 33-year-old climber wore her hair in a ponytail covered partially by a headband in violation of Iran's strict dress code during a climb at the International Federation of Sport Climbing's Asian Championships in Seoul. There were conflicting reports in the Iranian media about whether Rakabi will now face arrest. She said in an interview with a state-run news agency Wednesday evening that she'd unintentionally forgotten to put on her hijab. The struggle that I had with wearing my shoes and preparing my gear made me forget about the proper hijab that I should have had, and I went to the wall and ascended. 
This comes as a massive fire engulfed parts of Tehran's infamous Evin prison Saturday, killing at least eight people, injuring dozens more. Witnesses reported hearing explosions and gunfire coming from the prison known for holding political prisoners. Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke about all of this and more in an in-depth interview with the Iranian activist and lawyer Dr. Shireen Abadi, once held at the Evin prison. Shireen Abadi was the first female judge in Iran. After the 1979 Islamic Revolution, all female judges were dismissed. In 1999, she was imprisoned for nearly a month for her work defending prisoners of conscience. She was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003, the first Iranian and first Muslim woman to win the award. She used the prize money to set up the Defenders of Human Rights Center. She worked as a human rights lawyer in Iran for decades, focusing in particular on the rights of women, children and political prisoners. She's lived in exile since 2009. Dr. Abadi joined us from London Wednesday. I began by asking her about the protests. The scale of these recent protests are so wide. Even schoolchildren have joined a line of protesters. Even schoolchildren do not want to accept the educational system in Iran. The scale of the protests, the recent ones, of course, are, go much, much further and wider than the previous ones. And the main difference between these protests and the previous ones is that uh, in the previous protests, uh, the people used to congregate in various places around cities and towns and chant slogans. But now um, they've become wiser, the protesters. Uh, they make sure that their protests are all over the country in various areas and sporadic. And uh, so it makes it very difficult for anti-riot forces to be present in every corner of the country. And it's very regrettable that in order to crack down on these protesters, the regime is, uh, uh, is even trying to um, persuade children by giving them money to go and join the um, government forces and stand against the protesters. And um, meanwhile, many protesters have been uh, arrested, uh, including schoolchildren, and one, school one of the schoolchildren was killed when the school was raided. And also, the regime is exploiting orphans in the country and uh, it's uh, turning them more or less into child soldiers for the regime. Dr. Abadi, could you uh, elaborate on that? What do you mean that the regime is turning uh, children into ch child soldiers? 
ببینید دولت ایران به کنوانسیون The Iranian government is a signatory to the Convention for the Rights of the Child. And as you know, the Convention says it is forbidden to use children in wars, in conflicts. But the Iranian government used uh, these children as child soldiers in the Iran-Iraq war. If you remember, and even now, it's using um, some children for the uh, same purpose. And the situation of children in Iran is absolutely dire. Children under the age of 18 are um, executed. And it's one of the very few countries in the world where there is still death penalty for uh, young people under the age of 18. And, um, and they also constantly arrest and imprison juveniles. And um, when you look at the footage from the protest, you actually you can actually see these children who are... Um, clearly under the age of 18. And it's um, very clear that they either pay these uh, children or um, they try every way possible to persuade these children to join them because they don't have enough um, soldiers in their anti-riot force. Dr. Badi, could you also explain how the changing demographics in the country have altered uh, in the years since uh, the revolution. Half of uh, the population of Iran was born now after the 79 revolution and so have known no other government uh, than the governments that came into power following that. Uh, and also the literacy rates uh, among women, the way that they've increased exponentially uh, since the revolution prior to 79 uh, uh, women's literacy was below 30 percent, and now it's over 80 percent. Uh, more than half uh, of students at universities are now women. How does this figure into uh, uh, the protests happening today and, and the fact that we see, as, as you were talking about earlier, so many young people participating and that these protests are, are really being led by women, young women? Yes. Absolutely. Over 50% of students in our universities are female. And um, likewise, many of our professors at university are female. We have highly educated women in the country. And it's natural that educated women are aware. They're aware of their rights. And they cannot tolerate the discrimination they are being subjected to and, um, and they have been subjected to since the 1979 revolution. And it is for that very reason that in every protest, and uh, I'm not just talking about the recent protest, but in every protest we've had since the revolution, it's the women who've been at the forefront and to, I would like to elaborate and give you a few examples of some of the laws that were adopted after the 1979 revolution so you can understand why women are protesting. 
In addition to um, enforced hijab in Iran, based on law in Iran, the life of a woman is only considered worth half of that man. For instance, if my brother and I are um, in a car crash and the damaged a court of law awards to my brother is twice as much as that awarded to me. And also the testimony of two women in Iran is tantamount to the testimony of one man in a court of law. Or if a married woman wants to travel, she will not be allowed to do so without the written permission of her husband. And we have so many discriminatory laws against uh, women. So it's very natural that uh, such educated women will not put up with such discriminatory laws, all of which, I repeat, were adopted after the 1979 revolution. That is why the disenchantment is uh, chiefly among women. Dr. Abadi, um, there was a fire that broke out at the notorious uh, Evine prison this weekend. At least eight people died. This is a place where political prisoners have been held for years. I believe you yourself was held there, but you certainly represented prisoners who have been held there. Can you talk about what you understand happened uh, and the significance of this prison? The precise reason for the fire is still not clear. According to the government, the prisoners had started the fire. However, the conditions in the prison are not such to allow prisoners to do such a thing. Um, there is, they have a room where they do needlework and they claim that the fire started there. Usually at five o'clock, they close the needlework factory. And so they would not, they would not have been, and they said the fire started there. So how could the fire started there when the door was shut at 5 p.m. as it is every day? Also, the first report that was broadcast on state media after this incident was that the eight people killed um, were trying to escape prison. And as they were trying to escape, they stepped on mines that we have uh, around the prison. So what you heard was not the sound of um, bullets. It was the sound of explosions resulting from the mines they had stepped on. And it's really tragic to hear that because the government, in a way, is admitting that inside the city, inside a prison, and, and they, have, they have planted mines. And this is a serious offense. And... Uh, the Iranian government uh, should be made uh, answerable. They are not allowed to pl uh, 
put mines anywhere. So the real reason is still not clear, and nor is the number of those killed so far. However, um, there are a number of prisoners that no one has heard from since, and they, um, no one has been able to contact them or um, have meetings with them. We have heard that the women's ward for political prisoners, they are okay and they, uh, nothing has happened to them. However, in the men's section, there are some uh, prisoners, political prisoners, we have not heard from and we are extremely worried about them. We don't know whether they've been killed, whether they're injured, if they're injured, which hospital they're in, why do we not know or what has happened to them? Dr. Ibadi, you yourself were uh, uh, imprisoned at Evin, uh, as was your husband. Uh, when exactly was that? And, and could you talk about what the conditions in the prison were and if and whether, uh, whether and how uh, conditions in the prison changed over the years as you continued uh, to represent people uh, uh, detained there? Um, it was about 1999 when I was imprisoned in Evan. And um, while I was there, I was uh, put in solitary confinement. And a solitary confinement is a very, very small, narrow uh, room without a bed or chair. And they just gave us a dirty blanket and not a pillow or anything to sleep on. So we had to, I had to sleep on the floor without a pillow. And as a result, uh, I have had um, health problems since. They take everything away from us. They took my watch, even my reading glasses. And uh, we are completely isolated in solitary confinement. We have no um, opportunity to speak to anybody, including our uh, lawyers. And I can say the situation has not changed. It's still the same. And uh, all those who are prisoners of uh, conscience, when arrested, they are, have to experience solitary confinement for a while because in solitary confinement, uh, they can put uh, psychological pressure on the prisoner and uh, make them um, confess, make false confessions. And unfortunately, these prisoners are subjected to um, the most gruesome tortures in all Iran's prisons, including Evin. And, um, and I'm sure you're aware that several prisoners died under torture, including a young worker who was a blogger. And his name was Sattar Beheshti. And a few years ago, he died. He was under torture. And unfortunately, every year we have one or two political prisoners who die under torture. We have figures for all that.
Dr. Badi, do you think um, President Trump pulling the U.S. out of the Iran nuclear accord further radicalized the regime there uh, by isolating it further with increased sanctions? Um, and I'm wondering what you think the U.S. policy should be today. Man I'm going to answer your question in this way, that um, before Iran was not under any sanctions for three years after the signing of JCPOA, before Trump pulled out of JCPOA. And in the three years... Um, that there were no sanctions on Iran. There were no improvements in Iranian people's welfare situation. So it makes no difference for the Iranian people's welfare and economic situations whether the United States is a party to JCPOA or not, or whether or not there have been sanctions on Iran. However, if they do lift sanctions against Iran, be sure that Iran does not spend any of its money on the people. What does it spend the money on? It spends it on Lebanon's Hezbollah, Houthis in Yemen, or Bashar al-Assad's regime in Syria, and um, more recently it's been helping uh, uh, Russia to kill the Ukrainian people. Unfortunately, uh, the Iranian people's welfare and well-being means nothing to the Islamic Republic regime. Dr. Abadi, uh, on uh, Evin Prison, uh, one of the people who has been held there now uh, for years is someone you worked very closely with, uh, the Iranian human rights lawyer Nasreen Sotudeh. She was also your lawyer for a time. Uh, could you uh, talk about what you know of her situation today? She's been, uh, she was previously awarded both the Right Livelihoods Award as well as the Sakharov Prize. Uh, she was initially imprisoned for 38 years, but her sentence has reportedly been reduced. Nasreen Sotudeh is a human rights lawyer, and she is a colleague of mine. And she ends up in prison, and uh, she's uh, been meted out a long, a long prison sentence for defending human rights prisoners. She's been ill in prison, and um, fortunately, thanks to the doctors, uh, they have allowed her to come on leave to receive some treatment. Working for human rights and defending the rights of people in Iranian courts is uh, considered a crime these days. The human rights lawyers who end up in prison are charged uh, with um, allegations such as you must be against the government, otherwise you wouldn't be defending people who are anti-government. 
And I have said on many occasions, look, if we are defending a thief, does it mean that uh, we are complicit in the uh, act of theft? So why do you uh, arrest a lawyer who is defending human rights activists and accuse him of being uh, complicit with the with such people, with the opposition. That is why many political activists, whether they're lawyers or non-lawyers, they end up in prison. I have to remind you, we have very well-known film uh, directors in prison. We have very well-known authors in prison. And the situation in Iran is that anyone who says a word against the government or uh, makes a documentary or a film about the government or writes anything uh, against the government will, uh, without doubt, end up behind bars. Iranian activist and lawyer, 2003 Nobel Peace Prize laureate Dr. Shireen Abadi, speaking to us from London. When we come back, we continue our conversation, ask her about the Iranian president, Raisi, the protesters' demands for regime change, and about the violence of security forces uh, throughout the country, including Iran's Kurdistan region, which was where 22-year-old Masa Amini was from. She was killed by Iranian so-called morality police in Tehran last month, sparking nationwide protests. Stay with the band Habibi. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We continue our conversation with the Iranian activist, the lawyer, the 2003 Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Dr. Shireen Abadi. She writes in her book, Until We Are Free, quote, I received the Nobel Peace Prize in October 2003 for my efforts for democracy and human rights. And though you would think that this would have propelled my work in Iran and won me some grudging respect, it put me under even more pressure and scrutiny by the government. The Iranian state did everything it could to suppress the news of my award, forbidding the state radio and TV stations to so much as mention it, and putting me under even more severe news embargo. When a reporter asked President Mohammad Khatami, a reformist who was in power at the time, why he had not congratulated me, he responded, this isn't such an important prize. It's only the Nobel in literature that really matters, he said. That's Dr. Shireen Abadi. She worked as a human rights lawyer in Iran for decades, was the first female judge in Iran. She's lived in exile since 2009. Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh and I spoke with her on Wednesday.
Badi, just to go back uh, to what you were saying about the protests, that these are different from all the protests that erupted in Iran, that have erupted uh, over the course of the last more than 40 years since the revolution. Could you explain, I mean, the one that received an enormous amount of uh, coverage uh, here was the 2009 Green Movement, when also millions of people turned out on the streets. Uh, the protests lasted for seven months. And in even then, the regime uh, response, the government response, was quite brutal. Uh, how do you see this protest as, as different from, from that one? And, and do you think this will endure, given how, how uh, brutal and violence, uh, violent the, the government response has been? Look, in the previous protests, such as the one in 2009, people had a specific demand. In 2009, they were protesting against the rigged election. They were saying, what happened to my vote? But now the demand is different and the demand is a political one. They want regime change. And they have all taken to the streets and they are all chanting, we want regime change. This is one of the fundamental differences between these protests and the previous ones. And the people are um, be, uh, resisting a lot better than before, of course, uh, the prisons are full, many have been killed, many have been injured, and uh, because the prisons are overcrowded, the regime is even using sports stadium to, as prisons. I somehow doubt very much that the government will again be able to repress the people. I think the people will succeed. As I said, even school children can no longer tolerate this. They, they've refused to go to their classes and they have taken to the streets and you see generations next to each other. You see children, parents, grandparents protesting uh, together on the streets. And even, let's assume that the government manages to repress the people by intensifying the crackdown, I promise you that in a very, very short time, there will be yet another protest in Iran. In fact, Iran, it's, it, it is like a powder keg about to explode. It's, um, they may be able to uh, try and... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fire. It's a fire that is about to um, um, become bigger and bigger. So there's nothing the government can do. Dr. Abadi, if you can talk about the marginalized regions, for example, the violence of security forces in Iran's Kurdistan, Masa Amini, uh, the young woman who is the flashpoint in these protests, was 22 years old, an Iranian 
Kurdish woman from Kurdistan, though she was killed in Tehran, and also the systemic killing of Baluchi protesters. What is the status of the Baluchi minority? The Baluchi are mostly Sunni in a majority Shia state. <laughs> Unfortunately, the minorities in Iran are subjected to extreme discrimination. When you look at the people on death row in Iran, you will see that 95% of those on death row are from minorities in Iran. The government um, represses them more than others. Mahsa Amini, in her um, birth certificate, she wanted to, her parents wanted to call her Gina, which is a Kurdish name. But the government did not allow that because they said you're not allowed to choose a Kurdish name. You have to choose a Fars or Persian name for your child. And this is... This is real oppression against a minority group. Masa was a young girl. She'd come to Tehran um, just as a tourist and also to visit a few of her relatives. And she was on the street with her brother when the morality police, under the pretext that her headscarf wasn't covering the whole head, arrested her and uh, they took her to a detention center and unfortunately a few hours later an ambulance left that detention center which was carrying the corpse of uh, Mahsa and the doctors in the hospital said that when Mahsa arrived in hospital she had uh, suffered from concussion and there was nothing we could do about it. And the pictures that they took from of Mahsa in hospital, when you can see her with uh, uh, drips and serums attached to her, you can see clearly that there is blood coming out of her ears in those uh, pictures, which is a clear sign that she was concussed. And, um, and she was clearly in, uh, you know, she'd fallen into coma and uh, started uh, bleeding. But since this government never tells the truth, they said that... Uh, she had, she was already sick, she had underlying diseases and she had died from there and that made the people even angrier. Now in Zahedan, a commander of a police force raped a 15-year-old girl and um, uh, they took the case to court and the, it didn't get anywhere so the people became very angry so the people of Zahedan especially the young people they decided to take to the streets after the Friday prayers and uh, chant 
against that uh, commander who had raped this young girl. And the Friday prayers had just ended in Zahedan that uh, some 20 to 30 Baluchi youth started uh, chanting against the whole regime that is not uh, um, that is ignoring justice and is not bringing this commander to book but since the police knew this was going to happen they were ready for the protesters and they started uh, gunning down the protesters, even those who had just left the mosque and weren't part of the protest. Many of them were also killed. The number of those killed so far, uh, as far as we know, over 95 have been killed. And these are the ones we know because we have their names and we have their identity papers. And many have been injured and are still in hospital. And we are still waiting to see whether they will recover or whether they will die in hospital. Uh, Dr. Abadi, you mentioned uh, earlier that the protesters are uh, calling for a change in the regime. Uh, how do you understand what that means? Uh, your response, for instance, to uh, the present uh, uh, head of state, Ibrahim uh, uh, Raisi, uh, whom Amnesty International has said uh, there is credible evidence of his involvement in crimes against humanity. If you could talk about his record uh, and whether you think uh, uh, the repression that his administration has carried out uh, has something to do with the force of these uh, protests. Of course, there is no doubt that uh, Raisi in the 80s played a big part in the killing of political prisoners. There is no doubt about that. However, to say that the um, pr protests this time are even more powerful than before, it's not just because of Raisi. It is because of the anger that it's boiling over. And for 43 years, people have bottled up all this anger. And for 43 years, they the regime has turned a deaf ear to the demands of the people and anyone who has said anything against the regime has either ended up in prison or killed or has been um, has fled the country. There, there's been a huge brain drain and we have lost many educated people. They didn't want to leave Iran, but they had to. So it's... Um, when you, it's a collection of all these issues that has led to these uh, recent protests and where people are calling for regime change. And, and allow me to add that 
What the people want is a democratic and a secular government. That's what they want. Because for 43 years, they have suffered a theocracy and they know what a theocracy is like. They no longer want to tolerate a theocracy. They want a democracy and they want secularism. And so could you talk about the fate uh, of uh, precisely the supreme leader, uh, Khamenei, who is reportedly very ill, but is grooming his son uh, to be uh, his successor? Could you explain the significance of that, the role that the supreme leader plays, and what impact these protests might have? Khamenei has been reported ill for a very, very long time, yet we still see him giving speeches. And as always, he's ascribing all these protests to the enemies. If Khamenei dies, I cannot imagine that we will have another Supreme Jurist Consult or Valiye Fakhi, because the situation in Iran is far worse than ever, and they will not allow any other cleric to take over and continue this despotic theocracy. One of the chants... Uh, that you hear is are, uh, that some of the slogans chanted uh, these days are against Mujtaba Khamenei, who is the son of Khamenei. So the people are chanting anti-Mujtaba Khamenei slogans to ensure that he doesn't uh, take over. I, but I really don't think that if Khamenei dies, there will be any successor. How do you exactly see, Dr. Abadi, this uprising playing out? It's still too early to predict what these protests are going to lead to. But one thing I can tell you for sure, nothing will ever be the same in Iran after these protests. Because the situation has already changed a lot since before the protest, but as to how the future will be, it is still premature to uh, make any uh, predictions. And finally, Dr. Shirin Abadi, what do you hope will come out of these protests? My hope is the victory of the people, and my hope is that we have a, the stage a referendum under the auspices of the United Nations so that the people freely choose the government they, they want and their representatives. This is my wish for the people of Iran. Iranian activist and lawyer Dr. Shireen Abadi. She was the first female judge in Iran, received the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003, the first Iranian and first Muslim woman to win the Nobel Peace Prize. She was speaking to us from London.
And this breaking news. The British Prime Minister Liz Truss is resigning. She's the shortest-serving prime minister in U.K. history. The move comes less than a week after Truss fired her chancellor, Kwasi Kwartung. She sought to blame him for the recent Tory budget, which slashed taxes and caused the pound to plummet. This comes as the U.K. is facing record inflation and a surging cost of living, which have spurred mass protest. The Daily Star had a live stream called, Can Liz Truss Outlast a Lettuce? After just 45 days, the lettuce has won. And that does it for our show. Democracy Now! is currently accepting applications for a video news production fellow and a people and culture manager. Learn more and apply at democracynow.org. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Feltz, Mike Burke, Dina Guzder, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Avtrina Nadura, Sam Alkoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Rabbi Karen, Hani Masood, and Mary Conlon. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. Special thanks to Becca Staley, John Randolph, Paul Powell, Mike DeFilippo, Miguel Nagara, Hugh Grant, Dennis Moynihan, David Prude, and Dennis McCormick. Tune in tomorrow on Democracy Now! We'll be going to Britain for the latest, and we'll also be talking about other red shoes. I'm Amy Goodman.